0: Guys, listen to my podcast if I talk like this you wouldn't how rude I have a really hard (laughs) I have a really hard time with sound certain sounds I I don't know why it's it's been that way for me I think it's a thing I think it's a thing that people have there's a name for it where like certain sounds bug you like for me it's the sound of people eating a banana or or really just the sound of somebody chewing in general. I think there's a name specifically for if you don't like listening to somebody eat their food. (sighs) I'm getting, I'm getting a little worked up just talking about it. So we're gonna move on from here. I'm gonna post a poll about whether or not sounds like that bother you. You can go take it on my Instagram page, it's called at the story of Pod, I changed my name. I think it was kind of confusing to people. I think people were mixing up what my podcast was called. So we're just gonna go ahead and streamline that. And you can also find me on my new website, which is just thestoryofpod.com. It just so happened that the story of was taken, and like I tried different variations, and the story of Pod was not taken on both platforms. So here we are, the story of Pod. I'm gonna say it one more time. The story of Pod. (sighs) What else did I wanna tell you guys? Um, Oh, I wanted to tell you that I was posting pictures so you can see these people I'm talking about, like all the characters, the key characters in these stories. I was posting them to my Instagram on like the highlight bubbles But I think my luck is going to run out on that. I think, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's like a limit to these bubbles. Um, I'm not an influencer. I'm assuming there's got to be an influencer out there who has discovered whether or not this is true. And I feel like it's probably a thing that there is a limit. So I went ahead and I made a website, you can go over to that, you can click links. Uh, if you want to listen that way. um, And then you can click on each episode. And under that episode are pictures from the story. And I can't say, I can't really say story because it's not a story. I feel like a story is a fictional work of art. These are real life, real life people who have been to hell and back. So these cases, people from these cases, and then you can, you know, I've linked different sources and whatever so you can if you if you feel so obliged you can click them and learn more about that case so that's what that's all about anyway enough about me welcome to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder and I'm so glad you're here This episode contains some graphic descriptions and talk of child abuse. Consider yourself warned. Today, tonight, this morning, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast. I'm assuming it falls within one of those time frames. We're going to talk about the Black Black Dahlia. And you've probably heard of this case, at the very least, if not the details most people have heard of this case. I've heard of this case. And as a true crime lover myself, I'm surprised at myself that I never really dove into the details of it. I just didn't, I knew bits and pieces about it. I didn't know what exactly it was about though. So, you know, it's, it's people have glamorized it. I think they, it's a Hollywood death that happened in LA and it was this aspiring actress and it was way back in the day in the twenties. And so to us a hundred years later I think people are, are like oh my gosh the 20s I was born in the wrong decade so for the people like that I think it's a little bit glamorized but it was still a murder so we're gonna talk about that but I think what is the very most interesting about this story is not the story or the case itself it's the fact that it has been over 80 years since it happened. And it's still the case still hasn't been closed. So I'm sorry, this didn't happen in the 20s. She was born in the 20s. This happened in the 40s, like 46, I believe. We'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so it's been 80 years since this happened. And the case still isn't closed. So I'm going to dive into what happened. But I'm going to focus on some of the the, the nefarious secrets surrounding the case because there are some weird shady things that have happened. And I I just want to talk about some theories. So Elizabeth Short was born on July 24th in 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. She was the third of five girls for Phoebe and Cleo Short. I know I comment on people's names a lot, but how awesome are the names Phoebe and Cleo? Oh my gosh, that... Somebody needs to name their cats that, or maybe their set of twins. So, so cute. So quiche. If you know what that reference is, please, please at me. Cleo built mini golf courses for a living. But when Elizabeth was five, he lost most of his savings in the stock market crash. So Cleo's not having a ton of luck so far in this current year. And then the next year, Cleo disappeared. His car was found near a lake on the Charleston bridge, but it looked like it had been abandoned. He wasn't there. So it was just assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping off the bridge into the Charles river because, you know, I, I guess he had a motive. He lost all of his money and he just wasn't in a great place. And so that was that they are like, no, oh, well, I guess Cleo jumped off a bridge. So Phoebe who was a housewife and a stay-at-home mom, uh, had to start working. And so she started working as a bookkeeper to keep the family afloat. And Elizabeth had a bunch of lung issues growing up. She had bronchitis all the time. She had these severe asthma attacks. And she had surgery on her lungs. And she recovered from the, the initial issues. But her doctors recommended that they relocate to somewhere with a milder climate than Massachusetts to prevent any more respiratory issues. So Elizabeth's mom was like, "Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that, girl. You can go stay with your family out in Miami, Florida. So that's what Elizabeth did. She stayed with family, or friends, just during the winters for the next three years. And so this was about the time she was 15 to 18 years old. So she actually was a high school dropout. She dropped out of high school when she was 15 years old out of Medford High. And then and I don't know if that's because she had to be back and forth or what, but those were the details presented to me. One day, when Elizabeth was about 18 or 19, so about 13 years after Cleo's supposed death from the bridge jump, Phoebe got a letter in the mail, and when she opened it, she found an ap- an apology from her dead husband that's peculiar thought Phoebe. I hadn't a clue ghosts existed. Just kidding. If she thought that, I don't know because I wasn't there. Maybe she did. That was probably her, her accent too. That's how they talked back then, I think. So anyway, it had been 13 years and surprise, he was actually alive and he, um, had just started a new life in California. No big deal. So Elizabeth, who had not seen her dad since she was six, decided that she wanted to start a new life in California, too. So she moved in with her dad. But after a while, he kicked her out for, quote unquote, not doing anything with her life. And because he didn't like that she was dating a bunch of different men, he was like, no daughter of mine will be courted. I actually read somewhere that Elizabeth had a little bit of a a weakness towards the boys. So... I don't know if that's true or not, but her dad just didn't like that she was dating around. So Elizabeth is kicked out of her dad's house. She goes and she starts to work at the base exchange at Camp Cook. And during this time, she just lived with this U- U.S. Army Air Force Sergeant. But he was abusive to her, towards her. And I I feel like abuse was pretty prevalent back in those days. So this time, it's about mid-1943, she took off and she moved to Santa Barbara. Then fast forward a few years, the morning of January 15th, 1947, a lady named Betty Bursinger, or Bursinger, I sounded it out four times, and they both sound right, so I don't know how you say it. Anyway, she was out for a walk with her three-year-old daughter, Anne. And they're just strolling down Norton Avenue, in L- which is in L.A. And she, she was headed to the shoe repair store. And this neighborhood is now the Crenshaw neighborhood. And that's where she was. And she had to go get these shoes re- repaired. And she stumbled upon what she initially thought was a mannequin because it was so white. But it was not a mannequin because why on earth would a mannequin... hanging out on Crenshaw Boulevard. It was the body of a young woman and it was only a few feet away from the sidewalk. So it was just sitting there waiting to be discovered by some unfortunate soul who would probably have to get some pretty serious therapy after this. Anne, Anne, think of Anne, her three-year-old daughter. Oh, Anne for sure started therapy. You know Anne needed therapy. Anyway, the body was naked and it was sliced clean in half at the waist. This is, this is so, this is so disturbing. I mean, can you imagine finding, say you're out for a walk with your three-year-old daughter. Okay, let's, let me paint a picture. You're out, you're strolling, your little three-year-old daughter's talking your ear off and you think it's going to be a normal day. You're just going to get your shoes repaired because we get our shoes repaired still, right? And out of the corner of your eye, you see a mannequin. And so you look over and you're like, what on earth is a, that's not a mannequin. And you cover your daughter's eyes and you push her behind you. That is what Betty Bersinger or Bersinger did. That's how her day started out. And so, oh wait, I have to finish telling you how she was posed. So the body, not only was it sliced clean in half at the waist, it, she was posed with her hands above her head, bent at the elbows, and then her legs were spread apart and there were chunks of flesh missing in various places on her body. She had been hit over the head and she was given a Glasgow smile, which if you don't know what that is, it's when they cut your mouth wider. So there are three inch slits on either side of her mouth and there is no blood at the scene, which indicated that she was murdered at another location and then her body was thoroughly cleaned so betty hurries to a nearby home to call the police and she did not want to involve herself in this here situation so she <laughs> i'm sorry i'm laughing i'm just i'm sure what she was feeling was awful but she called the police and she was like Yes, officers, there is a drunk man in the weeds. Please come find him. I'm on Norton Crenshaw. So she calls the police, tells them that, just to get him over there to discover it for themselves. No warning. And then she was like, okay, thanks for letting me use your phone, kind stranger. But I must be on my way. I have shoes that need mending, lol. And then she went and she continued on her errand. So that's why this is so But her actions, I don't know. I don't know how how I'd feel if I stumbled upon a severed and half-dead body, but I would probably go home, scream into my pillow, and then call any therapist. Betty later said about the event, quote, I glanced to my right and saw this very dead white body my goodness it was so white it didn't look like anything more than perhaps an artificial model it was so white and separated in the middle End quote that's how people in la talked back in the 40s so lapd began their investigation and they enlisted the help of the fbi a police bulletin was printed and circulated in hopes of getting more information it described Elizabeth as quote, this is what was on the paper. Okay. Five foot, six inches, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive. Bad flower teeth though. They didn't say though. Fingernails chewed too quick. End quote. (laughs) It's kind of a weird description because first of all, how attractive somebody is is subjective, and also I know that you know teeth can help define you and whatever. But can you can you imagine reading that description about you? Just a whiplash you around. She's pretty, but she's got the teeth of Mr. Ed. After these bulletins were circulated around town, information started pouring in. And they were sent this blurry set of fingerprints via sound photo, which was this old fax machine that news services at at the time would use. And within the hour, they were able to identify the the body, which I think is pretty impressive for 1946 or whenever. When did I say? 1947. So they learned that it was 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. She would be dubbed the Black Dahlia based on her love of sheer black clothes and the movie Blue Dahlia, which was new at the time. So, you know, they're <laughs> it just kind of feels like they're romanticizing this horrible death a little bit. But you know what? That's biz, baby, and this is Hollywood. At the time, the FBI had more than 100 million fingerprints on file, and Elizabeth showed up twice. Ooh, Elizabeth, what have you been into, girl? Once was from January of 1943 when she applied for a job as a retail clerk at the base exchange of the Army's Camp Cook in California. So you remember she was working there. And then again, seven months later, because she had a little run in with the law, she was arrested in Santa Barbara for underage drinking. How dare she? She even had a mugshot for this and she looks really pretty in it. If I ever had a mugshot, you already know. I would be ugly crying in it because ugly crying is half of my personality. Juvenile authorities sent her back to Massachusetts, but she was like, I'm going to go to Florida instead. And so she went there and she stayed for a while and she would visit her family occasionally. And while she was there, she met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. That's a lot of words in a row. He was a decorated Army Air Force officer. And he was in training for deployment to Southeast Asian, the Southeast Asian theater of World War II. And uh, Mr. Matthew Michael had gotten into a plane crash while he was in India, but he was okay though. And while he was recovering, he must have just gotten his priorities straight because Elizabeth got a letter in the mail. It was a very special letter. It was Mr. Matthew Michael, and he wanted to know if she would marry him. And she was like, yes, 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 yes. A thousand times. Yes. But less than a week before the war ended, he was in a second crash and this one killed him. And that is very sad. He made it all the way up until a week before the war ended. So that's sad. So in, I'm backtracking a little bit here, but in July of 1946, Elizabeth had moved back to LA and she had dreams of becoming an actress and while she was waiting for her big break she worked as a waitress and rented a room right behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard and then we know what happened to her next so an autopsy was performed and she had marks on her body that suggested that she'd been bound and tortured and her official cause official cause of death was cerebral hemorrhage which is just fancy for bleeding within or near the brain In shock. So she was probably tortured pretty bad. Poor girl. Police didn't have a suspect, but about a week after the body was found, the examiner got a call from someone claiming that they had killed Elizabeth and they would be sending her belongings in the mail as proof of this claim. And wouldn't you know it, three days came and went and they did receive a package of her stuff. It had things like Elizabeth's birth certificate photos of her, business cards, an address book. And so, and among these things was a letter and it was pasted together from like newspaper and magazine letter clippings. And it said, Los Angeles examiner and other Los Angeles papers, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. And each item had carefully been wiped down with gasoline. So there were no fingerprints left as evidence. And that seems like a little bit overkill. No pun intended. Is that a pun? Because why wouldn't you just use gloves? But what do I know? I'm not a psycho murderer who's doing stuff like this. I'm I'm busy. Two days later, another letter arrived. And it was handwritten this time. And it said, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Black Dahlia Avenger. End quote. That was a quote. I don't know if I stated that the letter included a location that the police did go to at the appointed time but no one ever showed but they and they probably knew that but they had to do their due diligence you know this alleged killer sent yet another note made up again yet again from letters from from magazines that said have changed my mind you would not give me a square deal dahlia killing was justified end quote did i start quote i'm sorry that was a quote it had been wiped clean of gasoline again because somebody's never heard of gloves and so there were no fingerprints left behind there was like one smudged one that they found but uh nothing came of it so because it was just too smudged and destroyed because the gasoline was doing its job i guess at the height of the investigation, LAPD had 750 investigators working on this case, and they interviewed more than 150 potential suspects. The police contacted about 75 men who were listed in the address book, which I think was Dahlia, so I, I think she did like court in the men. The majority of them said that they'd only briefly met Elizabeth on a date, but nothing went any further. And because this all happened near USC, they investigated around 300 medical students. Medical students, just medical students. My gosh, I didn't connect those two dots when I was researching. That's so many med students at one school, I feel like. Anyway, that investigation just led to nowhere. So police received over 60 confessions during the initial investigation but they didn't consider any of them to be legit. Can somebody tell me why people do that? Do they just want to be part of it? Do they just have FOMO? And they're like, what about me? Do they just have FOMO? In total, there have been over 500 confessions and none of them led to a charge. Over time, the case went cold and people just assumed that it was a date gone wrong or that Elizabeth had been murdered while walking alone at night over 80 years after the murder of Elizabeth Short, the case remains open. 80 years is a long time. That's a whole lifetime to come up with some theories. So I'm gonna give you a few of them. A guy named Robert Red Manley had started a relationship with Elizabeth about a month before she was murdered. And this all started because he had noticed her outside a bus station in San Diego and asked her if she wanted to ride. To which she said nothing. She wouldn't speak to him. But eventually she was like, okay, fine. After he persisted. It's not ever a good choice, ever. But he didn't kill her. And for the next month, he would take her on dates whenever he was in town in San Diego. One of these times, the place that she was supposed to stay in, in San Diego, had fallen through. So she asked him to come pick her up, where according to him... They stayed platonically in a hotel in Pacific Beach, which is in San Diego, and then he drove them back to L.A. and dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel at around 6.30 p.m. January 9th. So like six days before, yeah, six days before her murder. I think it was the 15th. And I think he was the last person to see her alive. Manley was questioned by the police, and he maintained his innocence He willingly took two polygraph tests, which indicated that he was telling the truth. And I, I don't really understand why polygraph tests are still around from, from my understanding. They're not very, you can't rely on them very much, if at all. Anyway, but he took two of them and he, they were like, yep, he's telling the truth. So then several years later in 1954, police gave him sodium penthol, AKA the truth drug. Remember on meet the Fockers? You know what I'm talking about? It's one of my favorite movies. I don't know why, but it is. And I'm embarrassed enough about it already. Okay. So they give him sodium penthol and they questioned him and it seemed he was still innocent. So they had to let him go. And he ended up dying in 1986 in his Anaheim apartment after taking a fall. 39 years to the exact day that he last saw Elizabeth. That is like a serendipitous horror movie. There are a few circulating out there, a few theories, that is, but none of them, in my opinion, are as convincing as this one. So let me tell you about it. A retired LAPD detective named Steve Hodell was going through his dad George Hodell's belongings after his death in 1999. And while he was doing this, he noticed two photos of a woman who looked just like Elizabeth Short. And so Steve started investigating a little bit into his own father. And remember, he was a detective, so he's a professional at this. He sifted through newspaper archives and witness interviews from the case, and he was able to obtain files from the FBI. He had, I mean, he he was going all out. He had handwriting experts compare samples of his father's writing to the writing of, of the notes that were sent to the press from the alleged killer. And the results were inconclusive, but the analysis did find that there was a strong possibility that it was his father's handwriting. On top of that, Steve's dad was a doctor. He attended med school in, in the 1930s when the... Oh gosh, this is a really long word. Hemicorporectomy? Hemicorporectomy. Hemicorporectomy was being taught. And he his dad, which I'll talk about in a minute, he knew how to do surgery. He didn't practice surgery, but he knew how to do it. Okay. So a hemip- <laughs> oh My gosh. A hemicorporectomy is also called a translumbar amputation. It's a procedure in which the pelvis, external genitalia, rectum, and bladder are surgically removed. It's just a routine surgery, really. When Elizabeth's body was found, there was heavy suspicion that she had been killed by somebody who was knowledgeable in medicine and surgery based on the way that she had been cut because it was a very clean cut and it was consistent with a hemicorporectomy. Steve also found a folder full of receipts and one of those receipts was dated a few days before the murder took place and it was for a large bag of con of concrete which in and of itself I, I don't think was alarming because his dad had something to do with construction uh something like that but it was notable because it was the same size and brand as a concrete bag that was found near the body which police believe the killer used to carry her in Steve also thinks that his father was responsible for the murder of a woman named Jeannie French, which happened three weeks after Elizabeth's death. And just like Elizabeth, she suffered flint force trauma. She suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and her body was also found posed in a, vac- a vacant lot. And on her body, they found the letters BD written in red lipstick, which they thought. Possibly stood for Black Dahlia. George Hodel drove a black 1936 Packard that looked similar to the car that had been seen near where the body was found. And another speculation is that this was George's sick attempt at art. He was obsessed with this artist named Man Ray. He idolized him. Man Ray was a visual artist, and George. He was only a mere doctor, but he wanted to be an artist himself. Nobody could, there was nobody like Man Ray, and he needed to be part of it. And the way that Elizabeth was posed was very similar to his two works, Minotaur and The Lovers. Whether or not George Hodel was the Black Dahlia murderer, he was sick trash. He was a disgusting waste of a human being. And I'm going to tell you why. But let me just state that all of the information I'm about to give you, to me, points to him as guilty, and I think he, I think he killed Elizabeth Short. So, let me get into it. So, he had a daughter named Tamar, and Tamar recalled that he would host these huge parties at their home, which was adjacent to Hollywood, and their guests included movie stars and Man Ray, his idol. And Tamar reported that as a child, she was made to pose nude for Man Ray, and she ran away from home in 1949 and reported reported her father to the police because even as a young child, she was like, "Mm, I don't think this is right. She told the police that he had tried to teach her about oral sex at the age of 11, raped her, and offered her up to his friends for sex. Then when she was 15 years old, Tamar gave birth to a baby girl in San Francisco and her name was Fauna and Fauna was adopted by a family in Nevada and she didn't know anything about her history or or like her biological history, I should say. So like the story of her biological grandfather, who would be George Hodel until way later after, you know, once she started doing her own research. George was acquitted of incest charges after several family members testified that Tamar was lying, but it's speculated that they could have done this because George was the breadwinner of the family. He, that's where they got their money and lived comfortably, I guess. And it's speculated that Fauna is his daughter. I mean, he, he raped his own daughter. So, He's like her grandpa and her dad. So messed up and disgusting. In 1950, which was just a few years after Elizabeth's murder, George moved or fled to the Philippines. And in Manila in 1967, a woman was found murdered and bisected, just like Elizabeth Short had been found. And so Steve, George Hodel's son, spent... Countless hours piecing together evidence, information, what may have happened. And his childhood home was just half a mile away from the crime scene of where they found Elizabeth. And in 2012, he revisited that home with a production crew, another former police officer, and then a search dog to try and get more evidence. And the dog did pick up the scent of human decomposition in several places near the house. So that went to Dr. Voss who he's a forensic anthropologist and he found that the sample they took tested positive for human remains but that sample indicated that the death could have occurred anywhere from 20 to 100 years ago. So that's a that's a big old, that's a big old gap. Since most of the officers who were on the case at the time, were already dead at this point. Steve had to kind of reconstruct the conversations that the officers had about the case. So he compiled, I mean, this is a lot of work. He is dedicated, and I applaud him for that, okay? He compiled all of this evidence that he found into a book called Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story, in 2003, which became a bestseller. And Steve Lopez, who's an LA Times columnist, fact-checked the book. And while he was doing this, he discovered that shortly after the murder, the LAPD had six main suspects and guess who was on the list? George Hodel. He was a serious suspect, in fact, so serious that in 1950, his home was bugged by the police And most of the transcript is pretty dull. There's nothing of note really, but there was one exchange on February 19th, 1950 that stuck out. And per their recording, it said at 825, woman screamed, woman screamed again, in parentheses. It should be noted the woman not heard before the scream. That same day, George was over her talking to somebody, like a confidant or somebody, and he said, and this is what they took from the transcript, so it's a little bit broken, but quote, realized there was nothing I could do, put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket, get a taxi, expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Supposing I did kill the black dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. End quote. Seems like George Hodel is the killer, doesn't it? Don't you think? I haven't even read the book and I'm convinced he's the killer. Yet he was released. I mean, that they had a transcript of him. Audio. They had audio of him talking about putting a pillow over somebody and maybe his secretary is dead because of him. I don't know. There's just a lot to look into there, but the investigation into him was shut down abruptly in 1950 because one of the lead investigators claimed that the recordings taken from his home eliminated him as a suspect. So either this lead investigator is very bad at his job and was dropped on the head as a child multiple times and maybe even had his face slammed into the wall Every single day of his life up until that point, or there's something suspicious going on here. Steve thinks that through his connections and occupations, his father had knowledge about corruptions in the LAPD and their ties to prostitution and abortion rings. Because he was a doctor who ran a venereal disease clinic, and he knew just about everything when it came to the sex lives of his patients. So he, he being Steve, thinks that the police covered up George's crimes in order to avoid air, you know, their own dirty laundry being aired. So it's like a, hey, you've got this on me. I've got this on you. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. We're good. Yeah. Okay. The transcripts from his house, being bugged, also reportedly showed George saying, quote, "This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office." End quote. He's guilty, you guys. I'm telling you right now that George Hodel is burning in hell. You know what else is weird? Is a lot of the physical evidence from the Black Dahlia case is missing. And on top of this, Steve has found details from dozens of other murders that he thinks his father could be connected to, which would make him a deranged serial killer. And I think if for some crazy reason, he wasn't the killer of Black Dahlia, he was the killer of other people for sure. So I'm going to give you one more theory. It's not as compelling as the last one, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There's a British author named Paiute Eatwell who published a book in 2017 called Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder. She claims that Leslie Dillon was the killer. The police briefly considered him as the primary suspect, but they let him go. Dillon was a bellhop, and Paiu thinks that he murdered Elizabeth Short at the behest of Mark Hansen, who was a local nightclub and theater owner who he worked with. Mark Hansen was also a suspect. He owned the address book that had been mailed to the examiner. Remember, in her thing, her all with all of her belongings. But he was ultimately let go, explaining that he gave the book to Elizabeth as as a gift. So he was one of the last people to have spoken to Elizabeth in a phone call, and she reportedly stayed with him for a few nights right before her death, or er, before her death, sometime before her death. And Paiu alleges that he was infatuated with her and he came on to her, but she rebuffed his his advances. And so supposedly he called on Dylan to get rid of her. And if that's not the most intense, severe case of some dude on Tinder reaching out to you and you saying no, thank you. And them calling you ugly anyway, (laughs) you're ugly anyway. That's that on steroids. This is that on steroids. Dylan had worked as a mortician's assistant, so he could have very well known how to bleed a body dry, but the question is, could he have known how to perform that type of a surgery to cut her in half with such clean lines that just, I don't know that Dylan was the guy. But Paiu also discovered from police reports that Dylan knew details about the murder that hadn't been released to the public, so that's a little suspicious, one of the details was that Elizabeth had a tattoo, this is graphic, had a tattoo of a rose on her thigh that had been cut out and shoved up into her. In the end, Dylan was never charged with the crime and Paiu claims that he was released due to Mark Hansen's ties to some cops with LAPD. Paiu believes that the murder was committed at the Astro Motel. There are eyewitness reports that claim a woman who looked like Elizabeth was seen at the motel before her murder, but these reports are uncorroborated. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, which was the morning that her body was found, the owner of the motel, named Harry Hoffman, opened the door to one of the rooms to find it covered in blood and fecal matter. And in another room, he found a bundle of women's clothing wrapped up in brown paper, also stained with blood. And instead of reporting what he found, he cleaned it up. He put on his wife beater and he got his blue gloves. He snapped those babies right on, hopefully a mask. I don't know. But he cleaned it up because he had been arrested four days earlier for beating his wife. So... (laughs) He's a real winner. He's like, I just got arrested for beating Betsy bloody. I cannot have another run in with the police. I can't risk that. So he cleaned up blood and crap. So even though to me, none of this sounds real credible, Paiu is confident in her findings. So confident that she wrote a book, but none of her theories have been proven. Thank you so much for being here and listening to the story. If you want to have a conversation about it, DM me on Instagram, The Story of Pod. Check out my website, TheStoryOfPod.com. Leave a five star review and tell your sister all about my podcast. I love you so much. Bye. <laughs>